everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Jaffe, joined this week and possibly in the future by guest host Michelle Chen, who has been a belabored guest before and uh, will be joining me to talk about all sorts of interesting things, only some of which are related to the government shutdown, I swear. But first, my news of the week was a slightly horrifying story that I read in the New York Daily News about kindergartners taking standardized tests. Um, I wrote about the the possibility of this, or rather the sort of impending doom of this, a couple months ago in these times about New York State's new teacher evaluation system, which, you know, requires more tests for everyone, including art class, gym class, and yes, kindergarten. So the thing that really struck me, and I ended up writing about again in these times, was that the teachers were saying that the children kept wanting to help each other on these standardized tests, and of course they were told that they can't because that's cheating. And, you know, the teachers are pointing out that this is developmentally inappropriate, that this is the age at which kids are usually being taught that sharing is caring. And for me, it really underscored the ideological purpose of these tests, that not only are they designed to sort of reduce teachers to these easily replaceable automatons that you can then sub in a, you know, Teach for America kid from wherever for a couple of years and completely bust the union, but also it's designed to teach kids to just see each other as the competition constantly and that their only job in life is to sort of stomp each other on the way up. Um, So we'll put a link to both the Daily News piece and the piece that I wrote in response on the Descent website. And Michelle, what are you watching this week? So I was paying attention to the other end of the K through 16 spectrum (laughs) and um, looking at what's going on with graduate uh, assistant union organizing on college campuses. And I think an issue that has been coming to the fore in uh, campus labor disputes is the need for some form of labor organization among adjunct, non-tenure track, and uh, graduate student teaching faculty, essentially. They're often treated as if the labor that they're putting into teaching is, you know, basically just another part of their academic program, and therefore they're not really valued for the labor that they put in. And that's a really crucial distinction, because when you start devaluing the labor of a group of people who are becoming more and more responsible for a greater and greater share of the teaching that's being done on campus. You know, I think some uh, you know, 20% of the instructional teaching workforce is made up of graduate employees now, according to the American Federation of Teachers. That has real impacts on not only the learning experience, but also the dynamics of the campus as a workplace. And often this veneer of professionalism that's promulgated throughout faculty as a way of dissuading people from organizing around labor issues um, really ends up uh, putting a kind of a professional patina on some real economic grievances that people have. And right now we have uh, some of the graduate teaching assistants at NYU trying to organize their own unions, sort of trying to continue this battle that's been waged for many years for union recognition. They're nearing a deal with the uh, NYU administration, but following a pattern that's been going on for years now, uh, NYU is sort of balking at the idea of including research assistance into that uh, union. And that is sort of a potential obstacle for uh, the 
teaching assistants that are trying to organize because, again, it's a way of further segregating the academic workforce. And what we don't want is an educational workforce that is uh, turned against each other. And unfortunately, that's a tactic that a lot of administrations, especially at massive neoliberal private institutions like NYU, that's a tactic that a lot of them are resorting to. Sort of a good news counterpoint to that that I spotted in the news was a piece in Labor Notes uh, talking about faculty unionization at the University of Oregon. And they have just sealed the deal on a pretty progressive faculty contract that involves both tenure-track and non-tenure-track faculty. And so while it preserves certain professional distinctions, um, it does recognize the importance of raising the floor for both non-tenure-track and tenure-track. So whatever track you find yourself on, you're not you know, forced to take a valve penury in order to teach Because, you know, as we see on the K-12 end of the scale and also in higher education as well, the the school is a a workplace. um, And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to devalue sort of the intellectual enrichment that takes place. But one way to ensure that the learning environment is fair for everyone is to value faculty as workers. Oh, by the way, full disclosure, I'm actually, I have been a graduate uh, teaching assistant uh, at my institution, City University of New York, so just adding that. I also was a graduate teaching assistant when I was doing my master's at Temple University in Pennsylvania. It is, to this date, my only union job. Right. And, uh, and it was a damn good one, I'm sure. It was sure. a damn good one. Right. Tugs um, up. But anyway, <laughs> yes. It's interesting because the other piece that I was working on this week was a piece about resident physicians who are organizing at two different facilities across the country from one another, but they're facing the same problem in each place, which is that, once again, the administration does not want to recognize them as workers. They want to say that they are students, and thus they don't have the right to be in a union. These are residents at the University of California, Irvine's hospital medical school program, and residents here in New York at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, who are working through the Mount Sinai Medical School. So in each case, these workers, what's going on is that they're arguing that some of them, the the first-year residents who are known as interns, they're not really workers yet, they're still students, or that, you know, doctors who are on rotation off of campus or something else, it's, yet again, as Michelle said, another way to sort of chop up these bargaining units into something that's so small that they have no power or delay the whole process until the group of workers that are interested in joining the union have all graduated and moved on, presumably to their well-paid physician jobs. And this case was pretty interesting to me. I've written a lot, as belabored listeners know, about nurses unions and healthcare workers unions. You don't hear a lot about doctors needing union representation. You assume that doctors make a lot of money. One of the things that I noticed in the course of the Long Island College Hospital story was that the nurses and the hospital employees who had strong unions were actually in a lot better of a position than the physicians in the hospital. The residents were gone completely from Litch, but the doctors who were still there, who were employees of the hospital, were completely being jerked around, and because they didn't have a recognized organization that was their voice, they were getting the brunt of the administration trying to cut the budget and shove them all out. And so talking to the residents at these other institutions, they're seeing in some ways the opposite of what's going on at Litch. In some ways, they're seeing, um, particularly here at Mount Sinai, they're seeing a massive institution merging with another massive institution that then the doctors just have very little power. And so what they want really is that union voice to give them some power. But even though, 
again, that these are the future doctors of America who are currently working as doctors and working, we might add, for some 80 hours a week, they're not being treated with respect. They have the same complaints as the nurses, the same complaints as the hospital staff, as everybody else. Now for something completely different. Um, we're going to segue. We were looking, we were trying to find some uh, awesome guitar solo music that we could use as a segue, but unfortunately, we're just going to have to do it organically. But um, I had the privilege of interviewing Phil Andrews, and he is actually working on uh, an organizing campaign for... The Retail Wholesale Department Store Union uh, in New York City, and they're working on a campaign to organize guitar center workers. And those are the guys that you see at one of the hundreds of stores across the United States that make up one of the largest instrument retail chains in the world, which is also controlled uh, by Bain Capital, incidentally. And uh, the workers are having a pretty tough time. The flagship store uh, recently had some success with union organizing, and now the campaign is spreading to other cities, including Chicago. Here's Phil Andrews talking about some of the challenges of organizing retail workers, and he talks specifically here about the National Labor Relations Board process for certifying a union election and how that really puts a crimp in a lot of the organizing efforts because it really gives the employer disproportionate power to bust the union um, through all sorts of propaganda, intimidation tactics, barely legal kind of stuff that uh, basically allows corporations to do some pretty sleazy things to their workers in order to wear them down. Everything from, you know, threatening to fire them to uh, making teary appeals to, you know, please kiss and make up and uh, please don't start a union in our store. So here's Phil uh, talking about some of those challenges. And, um, you know, when you listen to this, think about what a diverse worker population is is not unionized in this country. Um, everybody from, you know, the guys who uh, just want a job selling guitars and doing what they love to uh, fast food workers to uh, non-tenure track faculty on college campuses. It really affects everyone. The election process that the U.S. uses in order for employees to demonstrate that they want to negotiate a contract with a union, with their employer, is by anyone's standards broken. It doesn't work it takes too long. Employees' rights are absolutely not protected in that process. Most unions have now made it a policy that they've refused to do these elections anymore. That's where these corporate campaigns come from. That's where you get you know, unions like SEIU or Unite Here or in New York, 1199 of the hotel trades, using all sorts of other campaign, uh, cor- you know, corporate pressure and media and different ways, political pressure to get these employers to say, you know what, we will allow our employees to choose whether they want a union. They can demonstrate it via cards. We will not stand in their way. Uh, we call these in general neutrality agreements. Because otherwise, you get a situation where first you have to demonstrate that you have a significant number of people who want the union, usually a majority, by signing cards. And only after you demonstrate that you have the majority does the government then come in and go through this process uh, of setting up an election. In a best-case scenario, it's going to still take 45 days. You have to put yourself in, in the worker's shoes. So one day your employer gets a phone call that says your workers want a union, and there's going to be an election. 
in 45 days. And in those 45 days, you can pretty much do whatever you want to your workers. I mean, you can't change their wages or working conditions, and you're not really supposed to fire them, but you can tell them whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You can actually make them sit down in forced meetings every single day. Um, you have no responsibility to tell the truth. While you can't threaten to close the store, you can certainly show examples of where other stores have closed. You can make up outrageous claims about how much the dues might be. You can bring in speakers who will claim to be from other unions and the unions treated them badly. You can show them stories of corrupt unions. You can show them videos of violent strikes. You can create strife and dissent and conflict. You can you know, bro- break down emotionally in front of them. And you can do this every day for 45 days. You can actually sort of like make a a teary plea to your workers to please not form a union. I mean, there's an anti-union industry that is made up up of a number of law firms, and they have kind of a generalized playbook. Um, And there's a lot of things to take out of it. And give us another chance slash the emotional appeal is one of the basic parts of it. So um, I would say that about one-third to to half of the campaigns I've dealt with, at some point management will come in and they'll stop talking tough and they'll say, look guys, I'm really sorry. I didn't know you were upset. I'm going to make things right. But you, you know, it, you have to trust me. We're a family. And the manager will literally cry in front of the workers, which can have a, you know, an emotional effect. And I actually believe that at the end of 45 days, that the reason that 50% of union elections are lost, even though usually a majority of people sign the cards to have a union, 45 days later, they suddenly change their minds. The reason is, in some cases, they're convinced by all of these or manipulated by all these tactics. And in other cases, they just want the anti-union campaign to end. Like they don't, they don't like the management, the management, and they don't Uh, they haven't bought into the idea that the union isn't going to help them. They just can't imagine going through this emotional duress every day until they get a contract. And that's basically what the employer is trying to convince them of, is we're going to make life so difficult for you guys. And we're going to, there's nothing can stop us from continuing to do this, not only for these first 45 days, but basically for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And so most people say, you know what? I'll take the old crappy uh, status quo because this new crappy status quo is so much worse. Right. Um, and that's why a lot of p- people, I think, would, will lose heart. And there's almost even the things you can't do, like threaten or promise specific things or, or fire people, uh, even though you can't do those things, the penalties for doing them are so slight, it's almost it's a joke. I mean... You know, if you if you went in there and said, if you vote for the union, I'll fire all of you and close the store. If that w- if that happened several months later, probably after the election, the employer would have to then post a notice in their break room saying that they won't do that ever again. There's no financial penalties, and if you fire someone, all you owe them is back pay, no damages, which you know is usually in the employer's interest to go ahead and fire one to three people. Right. Well, it seems like with all of these things, I mean, the uh, potential um, legal or 
economic cost to the employer would be minuscule compared to what they'd be potentially losing if they capitulated to a successful union organizing campaign. So as long as they have, you know, virtually bottomless resources to devote to busting the union, I mean, no cost will be too great if they can just keep at the union. Whereas workers, they are, I mean, they're obviously in a lesser position of power, right? I mean, they're, they're, not only are their livelihoods contingent on their employer's decisions, but, you know, the day-to-day cost of this. I mean, it's uh, both, you know, emotionally and, and probably economically taxing to them as well to be putting themselves at risk every day yeah. like that. Absolutely. I. It's like a presidential election, except that one candidate gets your full attention 40 hours a week and pays all your bills. Even from its very basic starting point, it's so the balance of power is so outrageously, you know, like if a worker doesn't want to talk to the union, there's nothing we can do. We're not even allowed on the premises to like sit down with people on their lunch breaks. So given this political landscape that you're facing, well, it seems like you have seen examples of unions lately that are using other sort of uh, public relations leverage to pressure companies into recognizing a union. Is that something that your union would consider if things escalate? Yeah, I mean, so on top of all of this, it's things are harder to do in retail because the union density is so low and the turnover for workers is so high, and so their attachment to the job is less. Most retail workers would rather quit than, than fight to make their jobs better. So given all of this, a lot of people look at the fact that we're, go, we're still fighting in retail and we're going to elections. They just look at us like we're totally nuts. But what they forget is that we are integrating the idea of a neutrality campaign and using the election as like one tactic of it. So, you know, the Guitar Center campaign isn't simply, oh, we're just going to go run some elections. You know, the first thing we did when we launched the campaign was to launch the online petitions. We had one for New York and one for Chicago. Uh, Many thousands of people have signed those, and those supporters are people that we can ask to do things. We've used Facebook both as the public face of the campaign and privately. Uh, It's a powerful tool for getting workers to connect across great distances. In addition, we've signed up, you know, dozens of bands and artists, some of whom are pretty well known, to both inspire confidence in the workers to know that someone like, you know, Tom Morello or Kathleen Hanna has their back, but also to put the company on notice that we're not engaged in a full-on you know, corporate campaign right now, partially because we're in negotiations and it's a delicate balance and they're sort of following the the letter of the law. But if those negotiations were ever to break down, we have built this sort of campaign and this group of supporters, both people who are musicians and shop at Guitar Center and musicians um, who are very influential amongst the people who shop at Guitar Center. And those people could all bring pressure to bear on the company. We're talking about basically the the people who who are Guitar Center's customers. And those people, we think, intrinsically will support the Guitar Center workers. And if the time came to ask those people to, you know, fight for those workers uh, to get them a contract, we think that they would. Um, so in a way, we're, we're kind of using this modified strategy, which, you know, we're not even talking about thousands and thousands of, of workers yet, um, a lot of people have, have taken notice of this campaign because it is it is a little different, and that is something that the RW does 
frequently. And so instead of sort of coming up with an idea of a campaign and then imposing that idea from the top down, we we looked at what the guitar center workers, who they were, what they did, and how they communicate in order to style our campaign. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're not going to take the guitar center model and just impose it on, you know, uh, thrift stores in the Bronx or the car washes or something else. We, we let the workers sort of inform our choices. And that was Phil Andrews uh, from the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union, and he was talking about the challenges of organizing uh, guitar center workers and other retail workers. And I think that's a good jumping off point for talking about some of the other struggles uh, going on in the non-union, the vast portion <laughs> of the workforce that is, uh, that is non-union. There's plenty of grist for the mill there, but uh, we'll start this week with fast food workers because they've been making the news with yet more bad news about how dismal their economic prospects are. Um, and uh, we learned from a couple of new studies out by um, University of California, Berkeley, as well as the National Employment Law Project, that uh, a huge portion of these workers are, guess what, dependent on public assistance. So that should be no news to anyone who right. has any idea what it's like to have to get by on less than $8 an hour or so. Uh, most of these workers uh, you know, toil at around that level. Um, but it really does add some statistical muscle to the argument that these are not just low-wage jobs, these are not just crap jobs that people end up getting stuck with, but this is part of a, a broad sort of structural effort to disempower workers in order to maximize corporate profit. And what ends up happening is that um, the social costs of these low-wage jobs, that is the social cost of the massive profits that is hoarded by these fast food corporations, ends up getting shouldered by taxpayers. So it really does come all the way back around. Yeah, and we've seen this, this is a topic of conversation all the time when it comes to Walmart, but, you know, there have been exposés about Walmart handing out, you know, sheets to its new employees on how to apply for public benefits. We know that this is a thing, right? We know that SNAP, otherwise known as food stamps, is a massive supplement for people who are working. You know, we've talked about workers here in New York who work in fast food, who live at homeless shelters. We understand that not just federal, but state and city subsidies are keeping these people afloat and keeping these companies in profits. But it's especially interesting to look at this this week in the light of dun -dun -dun, government shutdown hell, which as far as I know, and of course we are recording this ahead of time, but there is a deal which keeps the government going at deeply depressed levels for another few months while through the holidays. We, right, through the holidays while we all prepare to do this all over right. again in the winter. It's going to be a fun Joy. shopping season. But when we're talking about the things that are cut, right, and the things that are being cut, whether or not the government shutdown ends, right, we remember this massive debate over how much we were going to cut food stamps by in Congress. We have to remember once again that we have these systems that are not only keeping workers from starving, they're keeping companies profitable. And it would be very interesting to see, is McDonald's suddenly going to start lobbying for increases to food stamps? Because they're, they certainly don't want to have to pay their workers more. That would eat into the big salaries at the top and the money that they're basically 
sitting on. Right. Or maybe they'll do us all a favor and change their dollar menu to like the fifty cent menu, and then and then our dollars, our, our welfare dollars, could go so much further oh, on a McDonald's joy. budget. Right? It's just a, it's a vicious cycle, right? Yeah. Because you work for low wages, you only can afford to buy food that costs a dollar and you even then it's a very convenient self-contained system for these corporations but i mean i you know i want to say that i sort of i get nervous whenever these conversations start happening about how the public is subsidizing these workers because i feel like there's a way that this conversation can get turned around very easily to be opposed to these benefits and subsidies and i want to you know point out that that's ridiculous we want there to be a safety net for people who are struggling. We want there to be a safety net for people who can't find work, for people whose work doesn't pay them enough. We just want to not be spending that money to essentially subsidize a massive corporation's workers so that they don't have to pay them. This is not just about subsidizing uh, poor people who really need those benefits. It's about paying corporations in order to help them get out of paying workers their fair share. Right, right. And so, you know, we, we can sort of go from that to talk about this weekend. We saw that there was a glitch in the EBT system by which people receive benefits like food stamps, like the Women, Infants, and Children program. And it was sort of a quick preview as to what the world would be like without, or what the country would be like, I suppose, without these subsidies with people panicking about how am I going to feed my kids if this program doesn't work anymore, which, you know, could easily become a reality if the people who are running these government shutdowns into the ground decide to do it again. Or if, you know, Democrats who are not exactly known for their spines decide to compromise on cuts to some of these programs. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. An interesting side note, too, is that I think much of the glitch could be attributed to problems with the private contractor that they were using to uh, run some of this Shocking! So So shocking. um, Right, so, uh, you know, the the lovely private contractors who um, are taking our tax dollars in order to um, not run our benefit systems are also profiting massively from this. Right, It's, it's always fun to look into who the big companies are that are subsidizing I believe this one was Xerox, actually. Yeah, right, a household name. Yeah. yeah. Didn't know that Xerox was responsible for making sure that you could feed your kids. Mm. Good to know. But you pointed out to me also that there was an, an article about the cost of the shutdown and of cuts to these programs disproportionately following on, shocking here again, women. Right. Um, it's true that, uh, you know, Head Start programs, um, these other programs that benefit primarily single-parent households with children, um, a lot of this burden falls on women. And we also know that many of the federal workers who are affected by these furloughs are women, and that women are disproportionately um, employed uh, as public sector workers. And same with people of color. Uh, you know, it, it's just another reminder that when you see this political rhetoric being deployed against federal bureaucracies, sort of talking about civil servants as being moochers and, you know, not really deserving these lavish pensions and these gold-plated health benefits that they get. A lot of that is code for demonizing, you know, women workers and workers of color who have often uh, relied on the federal government for uh, some measure of economic security and equity when the private sector really failed them. And what we're seeing right now now with these austerity budgets is basically a regression 
uh, to a much more dog-eat-dog society in which, you know, people did not have the same protections that the federal government, you know, thankfully for all of its flaws, manages to guarantee a lot of its civil servants. So next time you see someone railing on, uh, you know, the dysfunctionality of the government bureaucracy, we can recognize that while the bureaucracy is dysfunctional in many ways, read our elected officials, um, you know, before you go around blaming the you know, civil servants who are at the bottom of the wage tier think about uh, what those workers represent in terms of where we are with workplace rights, with labor protections in this country. Yeah, it's worth noting that one of the demands that the Republicans have been going for to end the shutdown has been they want to means test the Affordable Care Act exchanges. They basically want to make sure that there's another program that is designed to be only available for people who make below a certain amount of money, who they're always very quick to demonize at the same time. So on the one hand, they make sure that if you make more than a certain amount of money, you can't get access to these things, and they're always trying to lower that threshold. On the other hand, as soon as you are making little enough to qualify for these things, they will turn around and tell you that it's your own fault for not doing so. So we can see that argument coming already. Right. And, I mean, on the, on the issue of the need for a safety net, I mean, while we can all agree that there need to be measures in place to help catch people if they're really victims of terrible economic policies and layoffs and other economic catastrophes like that, we also need to think about how these programs are structured. And if you look at, say, the example of Europe, where we actually have a strong welfare state right. when it's working properly, they do not rely on means testing the same way that the United States yeah. does. Uh, you have middle-class families who are also benefiting from, you you know, subsidized daycare, and um, it creates much more social cohesion and solidarity mm-hmm. instead of just seeing these programs as people, as only available to people who can't make it for themselves, right? And that is a very destructive mentality with which to approach property. Yeah, yeah. which is why we need a universal health care system, a real one. But on that note, Michelle, you wrote a piece this week about another one of the casualties of the shutdown, which has been the conversation about immigration. And you recovered a rally by a specific group of of migrant women workers Mm -hmm. this week. So for In These Times, uh, I looked at a protest that uh, went on earlier this month uh, for immigration reform. And, uh, you know, that issue may seem pretty much dead in the water because of all the fiscal Uh, havoc that's been going on and other issues of, you know, war and bomb dropping and all these other things that are uh, on Congress's plate right now. Uh, You know, it it really is important to keep these issues in mind, even though they may be sort of on the congressional back burner, because uh, it says a lot about our priorities in this country. We have currently a, a migrant workforce that is huge. And the important thing to remember that I thought this piece brought up for me was that um, these women were representing people who had migrated legally, right? They had had a legal channel to come here and work through visas. The problem was not this legal versus illegal issue, though that is a huge issue in terms of um, legalizing undocumented workers. Their issue was that they were allowed to come to the United States, but the terms of their labor contract were so vastly 
unjustly inequitable that they were basically in the system of indentured servitude by another name. And what really strikes me about that is sort of how cavalier the government is about this being the solution to our immigration problem. Right. Oh, just give them the narrowest possible legal channel to come through. We'll use their labor, their disposable labor, for, you know, a year or so. They'll go back. Um, some of them might try to stay. But for the most part, we rely on them uh, not, not being invested in this country as citizens and just sort of being our eternal surplus army of labor. And that is... Is, um, problematic for a number of reasons, and that should trouble U.S. workers as well as immigrant workers. And you know, not for the conventional reasons that often lead to you know xenophobic rhetoric, such as they're taking our jobs. I mean, it's not about that. It, it's about all workers being screwed by a system that creates a second-tier workforce that allows people at the very bottom to be exploited and then sort of laundered through the system and booted back to their country. It also, you know, messes up the entire wage structure in this country and leads to discrimination of all sorts throughout the workforce. And what happened with these women was basically um, they were tracked uh, through uh, basically a legalized labor trafficking system through a system of, of recruiters back in their home communities in Mexico. And they were basically brought to the U.S. on temporary work visas, uh, forced to endure long-term separation from their children, just as many undocumented workers are today. And they were basically stuck with a single employer. And if anyone understands, you know, the, uh, the value of the ability to control your own labor, um, the ability to switch employers is a pretty important yeah. kind of leverage to have in any workplace situation. Right. If that is taken away from you, you're basically an indentured servant. So I would like people to just sort of call it what it is. And the immigration reform bill, which was demonized by many people rightfully to be sort of a centrist kind of milquetoast proposal that uh, would not end this guest worker system but rather perpetuate it, right. still has many problems. Um, but at the very least, it, was, uh, it broached a conversation that this country really needs to have. Um, and so uh, I don't see this as a back burner issue, even though many people have already relegated it to the dustbin. I see it as an issue that all workers need to get more engaged with. Yeah, it's worth noting that this compares in many ways to what we were just talking about in terms of means-tested government programs, right? That when you allow the people at the so-called bottom to be separated off and scapegoated and abused, it usually just means they're coming for you next. Yeah. Uh, especially um, when we're talking about the women workers we're thinking about here because, um, you know, these are the women who work in seafood processing plants, who work in domestic worker jobs mm -hmm. often. These are essentially the women workers who are part of a gendered low-wage labor force that is subsidizing the professional advancement of many middle-class women. So I know, I know mm -hmm. I'm, I'm touching a third rail there for all the lean-in people, but um, that's really something that uh, women need to be thinking about as well. And on that note, because it's that time of the show where every week we say, Arg! I wish I had written that. Speaking of the women's. So Nancy Fraser, actually, um, a, a sort of leading feminist uh, theorist, uh, she had a quite provocative piece in The Guardian um, a few days ago called How Feminism Became Capitalism's Handmaiden. And how Subtle title there. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> 
subtle, subtle punnage in the title there. But um, she basically talks about the sort of perversion of second wave feminism into a kind of rhetoric that ends up advancing these neoliberal ideas about workers uh, all being part of a free market economy and how the market will figure everything out and how workers should be allowed maximum flexibility Mm -hmm. uh, in sort of a go-it-alone economy and how the idea of women's independence and empowerment has sort of been conflated with this very... um, uh, sort of testosterone-driven notion of each worker for himself, right? Yeah. Uh, of uh, how, in order to get ahead, women just need to learn how to play with the big boys and become hyper-competitive mm-hmm. predators just like the men they are seeking to um, upend in the workforce. And that is destructive for men and for women and for just about everyone in society because it, rather than you know bring an idea of solidarity and equality uh, to the workplace, which is what a lot of uh, earlier waves of feminism were designed to do, you know, second wave feminism, for all of its valuable contributions, has ended up being uh, kind of twisted into a way to um, make society less caring, um, and uh, it, it takes it, it sort of takes patriarchy and uh, gives it a feminized face, which is uh, not only embarrassing for feminists, I think, but um, also should prompt a rethinking of people who want to move toward a society in which, you know, women are not forced to be every bit as ruthless as uh, their male counterparts, but rather everyone is encouraged to be more fair and think about each other as equals in the workplace. And that should mean also that um, care work given at home uh, should be valued just as much as wage work. That should also prompt men to rethink their role as family members and as family caregivers. And it also should lead to more equitable workplace policies, such as family leave and paid sick days, that rather than demonize the welfare system as the nanny state, thinks about these things that all people should have access to. We don't ever talk about family policy here on Belabored, so I'm sure you guys are completely shocked to hear us go there. For me this week, my piece is... Probably someone you don't think of as a labor writer. It's Felix Salmon at Reuters, who is their finance blogger. And he wrote a piece called The Default Has Already Begun. And I think, despite the fact that we might be, like, off of the permanent crisis, you know, burner for now, where they've turned the heat down a little bit anyway, it's still worth pointing out that, as he does in this piece, that we've already defaulted. We've defaulted on our obligations to workers. And by we, I mean the U.S. government. When we tell workers that they are either going to be sent home and not allowed to work without pay, or even worse, that they have to come in and work and still not get paid, we've already defaulted on an obligation. That, in fact, the sequester, which, by the way, any deal that is coming forward right now is not going to end, by doing that, we defaulted on our obligations. In cutting spending to these programs massively, We've already defaulted on our obligations. And it's really important to think about these things, that default is not just not paying back treasury bills. Default is not paying back any obligation, and that this is already damaging the quote-unquote full faith and credit of the U.S. government, that this is already damaging not only our place in the world, because frankly we could use to uh, have that slide a little bit, it would be probably better for all of us, for all of humanity, For really. all, Yes, and by us in that case, I do mean humanity, yes. as Michelle says. But that 
we need to really think about, again, what we value in this country. Do we value our obligation to the people who do necessary work, whether those are the tax collector that you might not like very much or the NASA scientist or the, you know, the person who, as Maria Strauss's husband does, works making sure that the Library of Congress is accessible to people with disabilities? Do we value those people? Do we value the people who work in our national parks? Do we value any of that work? Or are we more worried about whether Wall Street can, you know, continue to bank on low-cost treasury bills? And I guess that leads to the ultimate question of, uh, well, we don't exactly know what's going to happen we with don't the federal know shutdown. Right. <laughs> I mean, your guess is as good as mine, really. As, yeah. as of this recording, we have no idea yeah. if, uh, if the financial system will collapse tomorrow or six weeks from now. But, um, you know, for what it's worth... Um, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it really does come down to sort of these brick and mortar issues of how wealth is distributed in this country. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in what the markets will think. We should actually take a step back and think about, well, the stock market actually is completely detached from the pain that so many workers are feeling nowadays. I mean, the stock market on many days this week, um, you know, didn't really seem to really be rocked by a lot of the uh, turmoil that was going on in Congress. And yet that was everybody's focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, the focus focus. And then when they weren't paying attention to that, they were paying attention to like, you know, the uh, poor panda bears at the National Zoo or whatever, right down to our media coverage. We we sort of have a huge blind spot when it comes to our most vital social needs. Yeah. Well, here at Belabored, as always, we will try to bring you the news of how these terrible things that politicians are doing actually affect working people, because that's what we do. Thank you for listening to episode 27. Thank you, Michelle, for joining me. Hopefully we will have you back soon. And uh, we will be back next week for maybe some post-shutdown news or maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll be in a state of, you know, complete horrendous collapse. I don't really know. I doubt it, though. Um, But this podcast will go on. But this podcast will go on whether the government defaults or not. Uh, And on that note... Have a good week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hate to end the fact, hell nah, we can't go.